Welcome back to the 13th episode of Power, Wealth of Purpose. Today, Oscar interviews Chris Hoffman, a humanitarian. Chris, after having lived in Zimbabwe with a missionary mission, decided to go to university and after spent most of his career raising large funds from governments for humanitarian projects. Now, he runs a tech company helping the beneficiaries in the collaboration with big associations like the UN and tells Oscar in this podcast about his work there with the UN before and just some general life advice. Enjoy listening. Off you go, Oscar. Welcome, Chris Hoffman, to the podcast. Delighted to have you here. How are you doing? Doing great, Oscar. Wonderful to be here. Excited to have a chat. Like, uh, yeah, it's really nice to meet you and nice to have some time together this evening. Excellent. Um, why don't we start off with the university you went to, where you've worked so far, and uh, what you're mainly focused on at the moment. Well, I'm old, so it's going to be a bit of a, a journey here. Um, I went to Lehigh University uh, for my bachelor's, did a bachelor's in international business, international relations, started out in pre-med and um, had a small jaunt in between where I decided to go to Zimbabwe and work in a hospital just to make sure I was ready. And I yeah. learned that I wasn't ready to be a doctor. Um, so I went back, switched my major, changed it all up minored in African-American studies in Russian and um, went on to do my master's in project management, a really practical master's. It's a little bit of MBA mixed with using MS project and figuring out what, you know, deliverables are and how to get yeah. this done. And Just quickly before that, um, in our uh, call last week, you spoke about uh, when you went to, I think it was Zimbabwe on a uh, Missionary? No, I did. I did. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's that. That's that's a step in a journey uh, before university. Let's dial it back. Uh, Chris Hoffman is a ten-year-old um, living in Southern Ohio. Um, dad's a fireman. Uh, mom's a, a, a pretty young mother. Uh, by this time that I'm ten, she's got four kids, and uh, wow. she's not even thirty. Are you the yet. oldest? She's not even thirty yet. Yeah. Thank God. I'm the oldest because if not, it would be a whole nother story. But uh, yeah, I was the oldest. But I mean, my mom, by the 10, by the time I was 10, my mom was six, 26. So that if that gives you a, a story. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, um, growing up in, in, a, in, a, in a bit of a strange environment that I had nothing, no, no, no idea about. Right. But uh, no idea that my mom was young, no idea that she was a sophomore in high school, right? And that she still had two more years to go before she finished high school with me, right? So so th th this journey starts out in that way. And I think, you know, when I got to be the age of 10, 11, I wasn't difficult, I would say. I think I was really active and had a lot okay, to think okay, about. Okay, I like that. <laughs> you know? um, That's how I'm going to start describing myself as well. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, you're active. You, you got a lot going on. You got a lot to say. You got a lot of things on your mind. And hopefully all those adults around you have the time and the patience to listen to it. But many of them didn't at that age for me. So yeah. I, um, my parents were like, listen, I think maybe military school is a, is a good place for you. Give you some focus. Give you some direction. And um, with my mother and with my grandfather, who was a, who was a preacher of the local Methodist church, um, they were kind of like, look, there's this great organization that, that sends kids out to live with missionaries. Um, you know, they go out and live for a time. They, they learn a lot of skills, learn a lot of manners. It's a bit strict. You live in tents. You know, you, you do the whole thing out in the middle of nowhere. 
And uh, they said, well, where do you want to go? And I went to the bottom of the alphabet and I was like, perfect. I'm going to Zimbabwe, you know, and um, <laughs> that's where it started. Was that how you made your decision? Absolutely. Bottom, bottom of the alphabet, the last country listed. And I was like, I'm going there because, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, how is it different from going to Haiti or to Ecuador? Like, I didn't know any different from any of the other ones. So I'm like, well, just might as well pick the last one. See how that goes. Um so I went there, absolutely a gorgeous experience, gorgeous country, gorgeous people. At that time, Zimbabwe was absolutely phenomenal, the jewel of Southern Africa. Um, it was really special. And, and that, I started to get that, that understanding of service and, and uh, of being in the service of others. And, and that carried me on throughout, even through university. So the next year was in Brazil, um, in Hondonia, in a, in a really kind of remote province, um, on the on the west uh, west side of Brazil, um, living on the Madeira River, lots of stories there. One day, I think that's another podcast just to talk about those stories. The next year into Mozambique, uh, this is at the end of the war, so right after the peace has been signed in Mozambique. In Mozambique, living in the basement of an orphanage in Beira, um, still UN you know UN peacekeepers uh, there, just just starting. Mines everywhere, you know, it was a really dangerous time. I should not have been there as a 15 year old, but I was. Um, <laughs> this is crazy, Chris. Yeah, you know, and, and but but still in the service of others. And and so what did that translate into when I went back to the States was was was, you know, getting jobs as a waiter, getting jobs as a cashier at a restaurant. But the one thing that really drove this idea of service was the idea that I was going out to ask people for money to allow me to serve others. So, so understanding that humanitarian paradigm of the fact that mm. people in need and people being able to donate to help those people in need, whether it is a government, you know, today or whether it is individuals. And so I used to go every, every, every Sunday, every Saturday when I was a kid, 13, 14, 15, I would go to all the churches in, in our county and in other counties around us in Southern Ohio and, and go and talk to them about what I was going to do. And then go and ask for money. So I was going to ask people, you know, I had to raise about between $3,000, $3,500, which back then I know I'm old. So it was a little bit of money. You know, it was a good, good amount of money. And, and I would, you know, get $20 donations, $5 donations, $100 donations uh, from people. Big ones. Yeah. I mean, but a hundred, like, dude, I'd never yeah. even seen a hundred dollar bill before. So like that was yeah, a yeah, big exactly. deal. Right. And, and so getting a hundred dollar bill and somebody saying, you know, take this with you and go, go to Zimbabwe and, and do the best that you can be, you know, learn how to be a, a better person and learn how to show people what service can be and, 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 and offer yourself to into the service of others. And, and, and that was great. And it was amazing. And that brought me into today, right? You know, like I said, UN, now instead of asking for $100, I ask for $50 million. So it was a yeah. bit of, it's a bit of a different shift. But the process is still the same, to be fair. It's pretty much the same thing. You got to tell a story, make sure that it's believable, have some data to back it up, and then, you know, ask for cash. And, and so that was, um, it's, I, I learned to do today what I did, what I do at 47 at, at the age of 12. And do you think, do you think you're, uh, you're, I mean, you started so early um, and now you're doing it and you're still doing it, but at a much larger scale. Do you think that university was even necessary for you? 
Well, there's a big issue in the humanitarian sector, which is different than even the space that I'm in now, right? So I sit as an entrepreneur of a tech company, which is a whole nother journey. But there, there, there's, a, there's an enormous gap with education and the humanitarian sector. So like, you know, there's, let, let's take firemen and policemen. Okay, so the U.S., there's, there's, there's a big European kind of uh, discussion that they have about how long it takes to become a policeman in Europe, right? Sometimes a year, sometimes two years, sometimes four years to become a policeman. In the U.S., it takes like months, right? Maybe a month, maybe two months, etc. Now you've yeah. got a gun, now you've got a badge. And it's the same with firemen, though. I think in Europe and the United States, it's a little bit more equitable in the fact that they... You know, to be a professional fireman, it might take 400 hours, 300 hours of training. Um, for the humanitarian sector, it started out as you want to help people. You've got a degree, go out and help. And it, I think even in reality, in the beginning, it was you don't have a degree. We don't care, but you want to help people. So go out and help. But what we've realized is, is that that puts people in harm's way. So those people that are vulnerable by not having a well-educated a well-defined workforce in the humanitarian sector to actually assist, you yeah. actually put people in harm's way. I'll give the example, yeah. a really quick example. So I do a lot of I do a lot of teaching here at the University of Groningen and some other places. And one of the classes I teach on is around the ethics of humanitarian action. And one of the the, the anecdotes that I tell is around the idea of cholera and toilets. So imagine me as Chris Hoffman, I'm called by the UN. They call me in for a consultancy and they're like, listen, we need a water and sanitation person to go in and build toilets in Sri Lanka. Um, there's been a war. There's people displaced. We need to build lots of toilets. Please go and help. Now I go and put in a whole bunch of toilets. Now, what do I know about toilets? Absolutely zero. Got a service mindset. Want to help people. Don't know anything about toilets. Yeah. Don't know anything about disease spread. I build a whole bunch of toilets, a whole bunch of people get sick. Cholera wreaks havoc on the camp. Many people die. Many people are extremely sick and affected for the rest of their lives. What accountability do I have? Absolutely zero. And that's because this idea of service in the humanitarian sector has been kind of um, allowed to operate without education. And so you don't let a lawyer practice law without a law degree. You shouldn't let a humanitarian practice a service without a degree. So long-winded answer yeah, to a very short question. What degree? It depends on exactly what you want to do. You could have an engineering degree in water, in sanitation. You could have a degree in international relations, which will help you around policy. You can have a degree in business, which will help you train youth entrepreneurs. So, so you need to affix your degree to the programming that's being delivered but you don't want the mba guy building toilets if you know what i mean yeah that that makes a lot of sense okay and so one one of the questions i want to ask is like what do you think people should focus their time on uh, during university i think what's important is to set a trajectory of what your ethos is right so it's not necessarily the career but it is what you want to do as a human being. And, and there are so many pieces to that puzzle, how you are with money management, how you are with uh, personal engagement with different people, how you engage with people or even your spouse, et cetera. That's another goal that you should have as a human being. 
But but in reality, as a university person, especially in your bachelor's, just do what makes you feel happy and you enjoy. Because your bachelor's is just a beginning. That's why it starts with a B. You know, you've got a long way to go <laughs> to do a lot of other things, right? I do just want to harp on this point. I feel like that is an easy thing to say. The issue is a lot of a lot of people, um, including myself at times, I feel like are unclear on what their passion is and are driven by by things that like like societal recognition things like um, prestige jobs and and applications like that. What would your advice be on how to free yourself from those pressures and find your passion or or reignite or or like where where do I where do I even find this? You know, contentment is so important. I think there's a huge lack of contentment today because of how the societal pressures. I don't blame anybody that's, you know, between the ages of 15 and 25 or 35 that they suffer from this lack of contentment. But contentment is super important. And finding that, being able to sit at home and sit on the couch and being like, what a good day. Got to do what I wanted to do. Got to kiss my kids. Got to say goodnight. Got to watch a little TV. And I went to bed in my own house. Super happy. You know, so it's, it's being able to find that journey. Everybody's different yeah. too, right? So it's not fair for me to say that everybody's going to be able to do it because not everybody lives in that, that, that world. But we all are human and we all have that opportunity to find our own contentment and, and, and look for that and understand that and look inward to, to, to grasp that. And I think that's super important. Okay, and then you spent a lot of time uh, with the UN. How was that? So working with the UN was was a dream that became not a nightmare. I don't think that's fair to say whatsoever, but it became something that I really wasn't I wasn't ready to to continue on with. Like the UN, especially the 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 programmatic organizations, the WFPs, IOM, UNICEF, UNHCR etc. do a lot of amazing work in the field. Um, they help a lot of people. Um, the UN, the peacekeeping, peacekeeping operations obviously are quite different. And then the UN as a bureaucracy in and of itself is also quite different from, from the programmatic agencies and from the programs and funds as they call them. But, but my experience was, was that being in that bureaucracy does not allow for the impact that's required in today's fast-paced changing environment of mm -hmm. displacement, changing environment of poverty and climate change and everything else that's happening, that that bureaucracy does not move fast enough to address those issues in an adequate way to assist the people that are being affected by whatever issue is happening. So so I stepped away, and that's why I created the company that, that, that I do now run, Humanity Link, is, is based on the fact of addressing some major gaps that I saw within the UN system um, from a technology and from a design systems aspect um, that can really influence the way that the sector works, not just the UN, but nonprofit, non-governmental non organizations, NGOs, how they engage with people in need. I think that the UN, as much as the NGOs in many cases, especially the large NGOs, have lost a little bit of focus, to be fair, on the individual 
It's much easier to address the needs of 100,000 versus the addressing the needs of one family. And I think that that marginalizes so much of the need that is there um, for the sheer fact that that's all they can do because the bureaucracy is so difficult and the funds, while large, are quite limited. And so the work that I do is try to change that. You what, can you uh, try and specify how Humanity Link or the the issues that you see with the UN, how Humanity Link um, plugs those. So in general, UN agencies don't implement themselves, right? So they don't do things on the ground themselves. Some okay. some do, but but predominantly they don't. What they do is they fund other organizations to do that work. So. UNICEF gets some money, UNICEF funds Oxfam to do the work kind of thing, right? That's kind of how it works. Now, by the time it gets to Oxfam, the money's already been kind of watered down, if you know what I mean, right? So it's gone through a few layers of donation just to get to Oxfam. So that's that's an example. Now, instead, uh, and we look at a lot of the programming that these organizations do, WFP, the World Food Program, for example, delivers their food in 90 kilo bags, okay? So throughout the world, in 90% of the places where they deliver food, that food is delivered in 90 kilo bags. Now, can you imagine your grandmother carrying a 90 kilo bag? Yeah, <laughs> impossible. Although she still does play tennis, to be fair. Well, but. you know what? Most, most great women, you know, continue on and they can do these awesome things, right? But yeah. But if you've just been displaced and had to walk 300 miles to get to the refugee camp, yeah. carrying that 90 kilo bag is going to be difficult, right? Yeah. Why do we still do all these things? So I, I, I started asking myself all these questions. And the humanitarian sector, part of it has slowly moved into what we call the cash space. Meaning that instead of giving people 90 kilo bags uh, of food, instead of giving people other other items, right? What we call non-food items, NFIs. We start to give them cash. Let's start to give them cash, let them enter into the market, let them purchase the things that they need. But right now, give or take around 10% of all humanitarian action is done by cash. Mm. That means that 90% is still being done by things. Why is yeah. it being done by things? Because things are really easy to monitor. Things are really easy to report on. There is a, there is, and why do we need to report on these things that, that we've given? Because the governments that donate to the UN and the UN that donates to the organizations do not trust the people that they're giving the money, giving the things or giving the things to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So we need to know how many buckets you gave and we need a thumbprint of every person that received that bucket. Give me a freaking break. There are how many billions of people in, in, in the world and yeah. we're still having people put their fingerprint on a piece of paper to say that they received a bucket when they just traveled 300 miles from somewhere in South Sudan to northern Uganda? No, that's not what we should be doing. We should be engaging with people in the way that they engage. So what Humanity Link does of many things, but our main, main work is around telecommunications and being able to engage with people over the mobile phone. Now, what I mean by engaging over the mobile phone, that means being able to communicate out, so talking to people, being able to listen in, allowing people to reach out to the organizations that we work with, and then finally being able to provide services over the mobile phone to those people. What kind of services? Mm -hmm. Cash, 
sending them vouchers. So, right, so you know the, the cards that you buy in the little shop, the gift cards. Well, we can send gift cards over our phone so people can go shopping even at their local shop. We can do a MasterCard gift card so they can do a tap and pay or we can give them different uh, items like that. We can make referrals across organizations. So if you don't do medical help, you can send somebody over to, to receive that medical help. But what we're trying to do is stop this idea that people need to go to the field, people need to go and assist people face to face, and returning that power back to the people in need to be able to communicate what they need and then provide the opportunity for the organizations from a technological point of view to be able to provide those services over the phone back to the people in need. Okay, fascinating. I think I was going to ask this later, but this is maybe a perfect spot to ask. What do you do? You see the um, the emergence of large language models and AI in general um, as a massive opportunity to to help automate these these kind of requests for. So, say someone uh, in Uganda requests something, um, and then if if you don't need the manpower to go to the phone, but you can have a an AI answer the phone that then um, deals with the request and then puts in the, to have the uh, funds. Do you think there's an opportunity there? There, there are, I, not, not maybe necessarily the way that you describe it, but I think, I think there are certain, it's a journey that we need to take. First of all, there's a trust issue still with LLM uh, and, 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 and machine learning, right? There's, there's a trust issue that has to be overcome in the humanitarian sector because you're dealing with people that are vulnerable. So imagine yeah. that that person asked about how do I get a birth certificate for my child in Lebanon to a language, to a model, an AI model, and that model gives them the wrong information. Their they end up getting kicked out of the country because they went to the wrong ministry to ask for the wrong thing, right? Mm. So there's a little bit of concern yet around that. So what we've done to address this uh, the, the, this exact uh, example is that we build out a, a confirmed trusted database that then we train the model on so we don't put it out there into the ether to allow the models etc to be designed and learned from we garden fence the model so that we use specific database for that model to be able to pull from and we train that model to pull mm -hmm. from that and use that so that's an absolute example of how we're using it today we're using Google Dialogflow, we're using BARD, we're using GPT, you know, many, many other things. On top of that, though, there's a lot more that AI can do that's not really in the face of how we see it today. It doesn't have to be beneficiary facing, right? The AI doesn't have to be engaging with the person in need. There's so much more that AI can do for us in the back end. And that's yeah. looking at the data, assessing the data, telling us what we don't know, you know, about the data sets that we're looking at, being able to look at the conversations, for example, in my work, looking at the conversations that are held over call centers and over help desks and being able to summarize those and understand if there are common threads so that we can build that out, you know, to to know where we need to to act next. Other opportunities are around scraping. You know, when you look inside certain, especially crisis contexts, being able to scrape what's going on either on X or on Facebook mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or on other social media channels to be able to kind of understand where things are trending, where things are going so that we can make decisions to the donors, be able to inform the donors, hey, this is what's happening next. We expect, let's prepare for it, let's inform people using our system 
right then. We send out an early warning message. We expect a huge amount of people to be gathering in this area. Please don't go there, right? And using AI to help us do that. So I think there's a lot of different opportunities around AI and, and, and the different models. It's, it's great to hear that there are voices in the humanitarian sector such as yours who are aware of the tech that is available and, and possible um, like applications for it. Well, the listeners can't, can't see it, but I'm giving you a big heart on my head. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> you, going through your LinkedIn, you have a lot of experience managing like massive sums, sums of money or directing it. What, tell me some learnings from that. Rely on your team. So um, in, my, in my, last, my last work with World Vision, which was, which was one of the most expansive jobs that I've ever had with one of the largest teams, with one of the largest budgets, um, you know, it's, it's trust. Trust in the teams that you work with. Hire based on trust, um, you know, yeah. I think is really important. I think too many people, I'll give an example. I was in an interview the other day. And um, we interviewed, I won't say what organization or what I was doing, but but I was interviewing on behalf of an organization for a position. And we went through the first group of people and they actually weren't very good. You know, they, they mm. and I was like, how many people applied for this job? And they're like, uh, about 220. And I'm like, and you came up with these three folks? I'm like, can I see the, the, the CVs? So I went through every CV. I wouldn't even have picked those three people. I picked yeah. a whole nother 10 people that were so much more qualified that even by reading their CV, I knew based on that, that they are going to give me a sense of trust in the work that they provide. And then interviewing them was like, oh my gosh, all three of you could be hired for the same position right now. Why aren't you hired in the first place? So, so for me, I think there is a mindset shift that needs to happen on hiring for qualifications versus hiring based on trust and humanity. And so... 90% of my interview process with people is listening to how they talk, not what they say. Are they telling the truth on that one? Okay, did they fib a little bit, but I kind of know what they were saying. You know, this idea of, of it's not just your gut. It's an issue of trust. Gut and trust, I think, are a little bit different. Vibes-based interviewing. Yeah, totally. Absolutely, dude. If yeah. I have to work with you every day, do you think I not? I don't want to have a good vibe with you? Yeah, interesting. Um. On that note as well, you've you've raised so much money, like hundreds of millions um, of euros. What, like, so many people uh, raise, including me, uh, try and raise money and sort of either it's uh, I'm scared to ask people or I'm too embarrassed to, uh, to uh, follow up on stuff or I don't know how to say the right things. Like, what, what are some things that, you, uh, that you've learned throughout because um, you've raised so much money? Don't be afraid to ask. <laughs> that, that's the first one, right? I mean, yeah. like, that's the first rule. You, you cannot go in there with fear. They smell fear like a dog, right? If you go in there with fear, they know that you actually might not know what you're saying. So right. confidence, under, and confidence isn't fake. Confidence is knowing your area of operation. Confidence is mm -hmm. knowing your craft. So being able to walk in there and say, I know the humanitarian sector and they say, yeah, tell me how. And I'll say, okay, I'll tell you how. And this is how it is. And these are the mistakes that you've made. 
And by giving me money, I'm going to fix those mistakes and make them better for the future. And I'm going to give you all the information that you need to know so the next time you don't make that mistake. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it is creating a partnership. And again, I'm going to say the word again, and I hope I don't harp on it too much. But creating a partnership of trust. A donor, you, would ne- you should never go to somebody giving you money with your hand out. Right? You should go with your hand as if you're going to shake it. And the reason why is, is because you are creating an environment where you two are going to be held accountable for whatever decisions either one of you makes. And so by creating a partnership, you create that sense of trust where both of you can make mistakes, both of you can be honest, both of you can give stupid ideas to make something better that you both need to noodle on and think about without any pretense. And if you can do that, whether it is with a donor that's a large-scale government donor that wants to give you $100 million, or whether it is a seed donor that wants to give you $600,000, the same applies everywhere. So the idea is you go there and you do a handshake, not a handout. That's the biggest part of being able to raise funds. It's not about anything else. It's around confidence, trust, and partnership. Really cool. Um, fascinating, I think. How about in general? What What are some good and some bad things um, about the humanitarian sector at the moment? Is it Is it going up? Is it looking good? No, it looks like shit. It looks horrible. It is so bad. I mean, right. they they can't they they can't keep up. I mean, every other day there's another crisis. Every other day there's something else going on. There's not enough money. There's more people displaced. There's more people. Displaced a second time, displaced a third time. On top mm. of that, you've got climate change. On top of that, you've got El Nino and La Nina. On top of that, you've got crisis in, in countries, you know, where, where we weren't even expecting it to happen. I mean, Ukraine, nobody in, or their brother thought that anything would have happened in Ukraine. Nobody was yeah. prepared for that. And they were already down on their luck in terms of humanitarian money. They weren't able to get all these. Somalia hasn't been funded well. Ethiopia was funded well, and they just got all the funding stopped because of corruption. I mean, they're dealing with so much all the time. This is not a reflection predominantly on the people that do the work. It's a reflection on just the way that the world is today. And it is sad and hard to be able to engage on all these things. You've got the migration in South America. You've got, you know, sea level rise in Tuvalu and Vanuatu and Fiji. You know, there's just so much going on that it's, I, I would say, like, if you really ask me a deeper question, I think, I think the, the answer is, is that there's probably no need for the humanitarian sector anymore. It is, it is the reality that governments need to take these roles and, and that every nth of every bureaucratic agency that's out there from the U.S. government to the European Union and ECHO, et cetera, should be solely focused on government strengthening and getting governments to be able to operate in a, in a fashion that's able to service the people that they require. Because the idea of the international community being able to step up and change the way things are going completely diminishes. It's, it's, it's a game of diminishing returns. They can't do it. The real problem yeah. is the governments yeah. that, that, that are in power in those areas that need to be strengthened and helped to operate however they want. I didn't, I, I'm not talking about democracy. Right. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is 
getting them to operate in a way that allows them to service the people that are part of their population. Um, and that's what's important. Yeah. I mean, if you thinking about it this way, um, humanitarianism and humanitarian help is, is not a, it's not a cure. It's a treatment. And if you want to cure, it's a bandaid. And if you want to cure something, it needs to be, um, as you say, government strengthening and, and, and policy top down sort of, um, proper well maybe bottom up and top down but um but like a, a, a revamp of the system yeah i mean the systems that we operate in today were not built for the population that we have today so i don't also yeah. blame the government sometimes right i think i think that yeah. they're just like what do i do you know our structures were built for five million people we're now 50 how how do i you know how do we keep up yeah. You know, it's just like things are moving too quickly for society to be able to address it. And technology increases that move so exponentially faster than we've ever known, even in the last century. Imagine that 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 in the last in the 20th century, we got airplanes, we got computers, we got cars. You know, the only thing that wasn't invented in the 20th century was fire. So there's so much that happened in the 20th century and like expecting a society of now 8 billion people to be able to grasp it and understand it and use it to a positive end. It's virtually impossible. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought of it that way. Like (laughs) things just went way too quickly for us to like just biologically even uh, it, it makes sense that we are, we are not able to respond to, uh, changes quickly on to something slightly happier um on online i found uh, or maybe maybe self-description you said that your family is a driving factor uh for you in your life um and what i want to know is i can i can totally imagine that 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 will be the same for me the issue is i i have difficulty accounting for that in the decisions I make now. Do you get what I mean? Like, I can't, yeah. So what do you, do you think that's just, that's the way it is and when I get my family, then then I'll know what's driving me? Or do you think there's there's any benefit or method to thinking about, um, I'll have a family, a family will be very important to me in the future. Um, therefore, I I can already start putting you know, setting a path towards uh, towards accommodating for that, or yeah, I mean, that's my question. No, it, it, that's a really good question. I really appreciate that, and and, and very astute question. I've I've nev- definitely never been asked it before. I would say, do what you want to do now, because the rest of your life will be spent questioning what you can do versus the needs of the people around you. Right, and so I really think that. Being able to live your fullest life now will guide you in how you live your fullest life in the future um, and without regret. And, and so I can say honestly and with a full heart that I lived to the most fun of my ability, the best of my ability, Yeah, you know, up until I was married. Cool. One, one last question. Obviously, the humanitarian lifestyle, especially with all the traveling and if you're boots on the ground and stuff, it's not for everyone, right? How can people contribute but continue just living their life, do whatever job they want to do that isn't humanitarian, whether that's, 
fashion design or being an actor or working in a bank doesn't matter but how can you simultaneously still contribute another good one i mean that's a great question and i and i feel like it's it's not easy um because i don't think that everybody has to contribute that's what kind of my first mm -hmm. answer i don't mm -hmm. think you should be required to contribute because maybe it's not real so i think the first thing to do is ask yourself do i really want to contribute right and what do you want to contribute then kind of feeds from that and so that idea of inward looking understanding of your own humanity and it could be helping the homeless that lives under your brownstone in berlin and going down there and making sure that they have dinner on you know every every night of the week that's humanity so i don't think that it's about helping the humanitarian actors or situations on the ground necessarily as much as it is being a human and so i think that returning to humanity understanding who we are understanding how we interact with each other understanding what our roles are as humans as a species as a group of people living and working together is so much more important then how am I going to contribute to the humanitarian sector? I'm not going to ask you to donate. You know, there are hundreds of places to donate if you want. There's 100,000 different foundations that you can donate to from lungs to eyes to ears to, 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 to corn. doesn't matter. You can donate to anything. But that's not what I think is important. What I think is important is reflection on how you interact with other human beings and making sure that you do that in the best way possible. And if that calls you to donate, then donate. If it calls you to serve in the field, then serve. If it calls you to work in headquarters, then work in headquarters in New York or in London or in Geneva. But but it's, it's, it's more so just about being a human and figuring that out and cutting out all the bullshit of the, the, the social media and the different things that we have pressuring us all the time about who we need to be and how we need to be, etc. No, we need to reflect on who we are as a species and how we need to interact with people. Awesome. Thank you. Um, final question. We ask everyone this also because we want to collate like a portfolio um, as, a, as an additional resource for everyone. Um, some cool books or podcasts you've been listening to recently or have listened to um, uh, throughout your life that you that that have inspired you or uh, given you motivation or you found really interesting books man I've got I've got a stack I mean right next to me um, let, let me I'll read you some titles uh, please so um, this is a great one braiding sweetgrass if you haven't read that one that is a must read for everyone. Um, Braiding Sweetgrass is really around the idea of how we interact with nature and the importance of our interaction with nature. Uh, another great one for the benefit of all human beings, of all beings by the, by the, the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, I think is super important um, to help us understand our humanity and, and how we interact with each other. Um, I mean, man, I've got a whole long list. There's, there's so many great ones out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll stop there. I could send you a book list if you want. But I mean, uh, there's another one called Free Will, uh, which is absolutely transformational uh, if you get a chance. Uh, Free Will by Sam Harris. So if you get a chance, uh, if Harris. any of your listeners want to read a really quick read, it's an essay. Actually, have them read Free Will and, and have that jog their brain a little bit. Okay, perfect. We'll keep that in mind. Braiding the Sweet Grass and Free Will by Sam Harris. 
cool thank you very much chris i thoroughly appreciate it i had a fantastic time during our conversation and um hopefully we can keep it going me too buddy loved it thanks a lot for everything Oscar, thank you for this great episode um, and finding this fantastic guest. I, I really found it super interesting what his understanding of service was. Uh, raise money for a good cause by telling a story, back it up with good data and then collect some cash. Uh, but like that, fundraising seems so simple. Yeah, I agree. I actually <laughs> thought the same thing was really interesting. Um, another thing I thought was awesome was uh, his view on how population size has completely outdated our systems. Um, and how our systems can't really handle the fact that there are so many people in the world. And it really looks like we need to change that. But making such large transformational change is also really difficult in our society. So it looks like a bit of a conundrum. Yeah, surely. I mean, the system you're talking about is mainly the UN. And uh, coming from a pure political science university, uh, this is what got me really intrigued because what he was saying about the UN, uh, which is kind of the ultimate goal of what to do after university here, uh, does not describe uh, this ideal that everyone puts it here. Very bureaucratized, far from digitalized, and all in all, nothing that would justify this Sciences Po dream. Well, we'll see uh, about academic dreams next week as well as Paul interviews George Ukrelev, a professor for sustainability at the ESCP which is a prestigious business school in Paris. Listen next week to hear them talk about Georgie's path through academia, the career paths of his students, and how he thinks we should plan our careers. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll hear you next week.